Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to today's episode of Rao Pal Real Vision. So I'm going to get a chance to sit down with Dan Tapiera. He's a very old friend of mine. He's one of the greatest macro thinkers in the space. He's completely all in in digital assets. And him and I have some of the best conversations. The best thing about this, we haven't actually caught up in person for a while now. So everything you're going to get out of this is just me and Dan just shooting the breeze as if we're out for dinner. And I think you'll find it interesting. The world of crypto is an incredibly exciting journey that we're all going on together. We don't know where it's leading to, but we know it's going to be absolutely massive. Join me, Ral Pal, as I guide you on our adventure to discover just what this new world will look like. Dan Tapiero, good to see you, my friend. <laughs> Raul Pal, good to see you. It has been way too long. I know, it's crazy because this is actually an authentic catch-up because you and I haven't caught up for a while. We've been trying to get together. We've not managed it. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, me too. Me too. So, as ever, let's start with the macro. Oh, the macro. <laughs> How do you see it? Because well, we're, we're, I, don't, I don't remember when we last spoke, but I've been on the same theme uh, probably since the summer, which is that, you know, diabolical Fed tightening. You can go back and look at some of the tweets. I was just shocked that they turned at the worst moment. They actually went very aggressive to tightening mode essentially at the peak of the CPI. So, uh, and they've stayed that way. Um, and unfortunately, I mean, I, I don't think I've seen it in my career, you probably haven't either, that the Fed is using the two most lagging indicators that we have, CPI and the unemployment rate, to make policy. And even they know and talk about, oh, lags, you know, within, uh, uh, lags with policy action. So it's a very strange thing that they have ignored all of the leading indicators that you and I have watched for 30 years that were very, very clear quite a while ago that we're going to have a significant decline in growth and inflation. So, I mean, I might put the question back to you a little bit. If, you know, all of your travelings around the world and all the people you speak with, why do you think that the Fed has just blindly ignored everything that they've always looked at? I was going to ask you the same question. My thing on this is politics. Okay. So I think politically, they need to say that they conquered inflation and that everything's going to be okay because people can't look forward. It's not their job. It's our job as macro people to do that. So I feel like it's part of that. And then I've got a bigger hypothesis that you're aware of that they kind of had to jack up rates to really get them down. Because if there was any remnants of sticky inflation, which I don't believe anyway, but if there was any inflation expectations that didn't allow yields to fall, I think they're in real trouble because of the interest payments that need to be made. They've essentially, what my work uncovered is that almost all QE is just the monetization of interest payments. And that's okay if GDP growth is at 2% and interest payments are at 2%. If interest payments are at 4 you've got a big problem because the Government's 100% of GDP in debt, and the private sector is 100% in debt. So I, I kind of think there's part politics because they they just want to say that they've conquered inflation, although they're going to get the own goal of unemployment. So I don't really understand that. Maybe that's fiscal. Um, but I think there's a bigger play, which is like if they don't get rates down to 2% by the end of the year, there's a bigger problem to, to have. What's your view? But the question is really, I mean, if guys like us, if it was so clear and is that inflation will come down uh, and has 
Uh, and I think next week is going to be a surprise also. Um, I tweeted that last night. Why did they lose faith? In, I mean, they really have lost faith in their ability to forecast. You say, well, they needed to make sure that inflation was going to come down. But we are all 100% sure for the last six to nine months that inflation was coming down. They basically lost faith in their ability to assess the, the future data. And I didn't lose my ability. I didn't change. I didn't do anything different. I'm not the Fed. I don't have as much resources as they do. But this is frankly the easiest cycle to forecast, I think, in, in, in our career. It's extremely obvious, right, as you said, that the interest payments uh, are a problem. But I mean, it's saying the same thing. The bank, the banking system blew up because obviously um, you have amateur local banks out there not knowing how to manage um, and it's not really their fault. I mean, we had the worst year for bonds in, you know, 50 plus years and the 60, 40 portfolio, I think you pointed out had the worst, third worst year since 1867. So I'm not like pointing, you know, I, I don't think there was any negligence. It's just very hard to manage, uh, an interest rate portfolio when the fed goes crazy the other way on you. So I, meaning that the speed of the rise in interest rates and you pointed this out often, was just too uh, too fast and and not needed. And so, you know, we've seen the distress and the distress is the sign that it's over. And, and I take this back a little bit, having even a bigger picture thought. I mean, I don't want to say, should we lose confidence in the Fed? Has the Fed lost credibility? Everyone talks about that every cycle. But the reality is that somehow the way those eight people or 12 or whatever it is sit around that table and make policy. And then there's one guy at the end who's the arbiter just seems like a, and again, they're all basically academics. They're not market practitioners. You know, it just seems fraught. And this is a, you know, very, I remember Bernanke screwing up in August 07 by focusing on uh, inflation instead of the the, the uh, frozen uh, credit markets that blew up the markets for six, seven weeks, and then he reversed. But, you know, do people question that there's a flaw in the structure of decision-making here? So the question is, is, are we looking at it wrong? This is what I'm trying to get through my head, is, is it a political process now? Is there independence? Or is there a signal to the fact that Janet Yellen is at the Treasury and they it's are doing been together, Raul. It's always been, you remember, you know, Ruben had influence on the Fed back in, you know, in 94 when Greenspan, you know, each of the, the powerful Geisner had influence. There's cross-pollination. I don't think there's any doubt. Like, I know you mentioned that in the letter yesterday in the GMI note, but I don't really think there's much doubt that they kind of make policy together. I mean, you know, it, it, Powell, of course, is, speaking to Yellen because she she was in that role before. And, you know, so I'm not surprised by that. I'm just saying, you know, do people, especially the younger generation, the millennials who've sort of gotten shafted, you know, a bunch of different times in their life, do they begin to question that this, you know, authority, right, this single point of failure we'll call it, the single entity controls policy for the, you know, the U.S., but really the entire world. And like, it, it just makes me think in stark contracts, we have this decentralized world building in the crypto blockchain, Bitcoin space, however you want to call it. And, you know, that space has gone through tremendous upheaval in the last year and it's doing just fine. Right, and there was no government intervention. There's no taxpayer money. There's no brushing things under the rug. There's no right, and so people start to say, "Wow, that's the digital asset ecosystem," as I call it, this decentralized, and a lot of it is decentralized world. And of course, at the crux of it, Bitcoin is a decentralized network. You know, does that work better? Well, you know, to play it through the minds of these young people, right? Yeah. So. We have the pandemic. That was a big shock to a lot of people, right? And you come out the other side, 
And suddenly we've got this massive inflation and everyone's taking a haircut of like 5% in real terms and everyone's feeling impoverished, right? You've seen every business around the world, consumption has dropped. The next thing, the output of what Powell has just done is, oh, by the way, you got screwed from inflation and now you're going to lose your job. That narrative, I don't think people are thinking through. It is going to make people really angry. Well, that's all I don't understand. Like, why, why is it that putting people out of work is the way to manage the cycle? That doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, and it's, of course, it's uh, people in the middle and at the bottom, exactly the, the people that you really, that, that need the job, right? So putting them out of work is the way that we're going to manage the CPI headline number. I mean, I just, it just doesn't make sense to me. And again, we both lived through a lot of cycles. We've seen how it works, but this specific case, it feels like, you know, they did make a mistake, not raising early enough. They then went too aggressive at the exactly wrong moment. And now they're focusing on the most lagging indicator, which is, you know, people's livelihoods. All right. It just, and when I, you add in another third yeah. part of this equation is, by the way, the money you thought was safe in the banking system is not safe. Well, that's another thing. And we caused it because the yield curve was too negative for the banking system to cope with and short end rates were too high. So that, that trifecta of things, I think you're right. There's a zeitgeisty moment happening here. It might be. It might I happen. It, it might be, it might be that it's the next time around. I don't know. I think that millennial group is potentially going to get shafted again. And, you know, think about interest rates on mortgages as well. They're out there trying to buy a home and the mortgage rate is ridiculous. And you see the data mortgage applications at lowest in 30, you know, 35 years. The housing data, I think, will still be all down this year. So, it just, I think that there, you know, that added point that you mentioned as well about all of a sudden your deposits might not be safe. Again, that points again to digital asset ecosystem, Bitcoin, Ethereum, um, you know, that whole world developing. And, and so, thing, and the other yeah. thing is, is there's something about the boomers that they have one fear, which is the 70s. I can't find anything that suggests we're in a structurally inflationary world i just see a reverse and opposite effect of the pandemic kind of like post-world war ii but these guys are so obsessed of their ghosts of their past this is not the millennials ghost their issue is all sorts of different issues you know they've got a problem with technology coming into their workforce and competing with them at scale they've got all sorts of other things i just i just think it's it's been irresponsible that 1970s dialogue. And I think you and I have swapped notes on it. It's like, this is not the fucking 1970s. No. Of that, with a population that's aging. Yeah, no, I, I I don't know why. I mean, it was a narrative that's gotten pushed for a long time. It connected to this idea that a 2% CPI is the holy grail. I don't really think so. Like, why can't the CPI be three? Like, does it really matter? You know, we already have a lot of, other inflation indicators that are pointing uh, lower, but you know this concept of we're going to stay tight until it gets down to that number also seems just very amateurish, right? Like they're not really interpreting and analyzing and making judgments about the data in the way that you might if that were your job and you had a thousand economists at your beck and call. Um, it just it's it's very amateurish and it still bothers me. And I've said this one of the other times that we've spoken that there are no market practitioners, no portfolio managers. I know there's that shadow Fed committee that some of the guys, the you know the 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 um, successful guys um, are on uh, portfolio managers, etc. But I don't, you know, I just don't know how they can make policy without having that deep experience in the markets. I mean, Powell is not a market guy and this has gone on for, for a while. So, you know, it just feels to me like, uh, you know, credibility loss, maybe that just, just straight out happens through 
Bitcoin rallying, you know, and there's just the, there's no, there's no like big blow up at the Fed. There's no, the, the old traditional world just keeps chugging along. But then all of a sudden, you know, Bitcoin's worth three, 400,000. And they're like, well, why did that happen? Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And that's my view, is this alternative financial system attracts more people over time because we keep, the old one keeps proving itself to be unreliable and actually disadvantages people. So I, I think that's the case. It's It's been, well, both of our core assumption for a while that it doesn't have to be an instant migration like Balaji saying. Right. That migration will come. Well, it has already. I mean, the middle of 19, uh, when I launched my bond, it was... Three hundred billion dollars in value. That's the, I, I, the what I call digital asset ecosystem as defined by the value of all the cryptocurrencies and all of the equity of the businesses in the space was three hundred billion. And today it's one point seven, down from three point three at the high a year ago. We tracked this very carefully, but one point seven trillion dollars is now the value that's in this in this new world in this space. And, you know, I hear all of this and you and I go back and forth, oh, more FUD, more FUD. It's like, you know, we people are pointing to Elizabeth Warren. I don't know why. I mean, I don't know how she's relevant to anything. You know, Barney Frank, probably, you know, the least relevant uh, politician I can think of. Um, I, I'm just, all, the, the, the choke point conversations, all of this stuff. Um, and, but the, the reality is, this is $1.7 trillion dollars in this space after a 70 to 80% decline in the price of its leading assets, Bitcoin and Ethereum. So, you know, and here we are, we sat through Luna, we sat through the FTX fraud. Um, I mean, you know, all these problems, regulation in the US, la, 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 $1.7 trillion. I mean, it's it's true. And that's the, that's the proof in the pudding. Um, I don't think there's anything that can take us back down. You know, I don't know that we're going to have a raging bull market tomorrow, but I think for sure the low is in, in the space. And it happened on the FTX fraud. And I, you know, on that fraud announcement, which to me was for the space, the most surprising thing that will, that will happen. He went from wonderkin to fraudster in the span of six weeks. Ethereum couldn't make a new low in price. Bitcoin made a new low pop back up. As we know, old market guys, that's a bullish divergence. The selling's dried up. Let's not get too like complicated about things. It's over. And now we have, like in the last six weeks, real fundamental data to back up why that was the low, right? So I think it's setting up very nicely. Um, we're going to have an inflation surprise to the downside. I'm not sure as I'm quite as... Uh, you know, uh, bullish on inflation, me dropping as you are. I think you, you're you thinking below two this year. I think we possibly headline inflation goes negative this year. There's a chance. Yeah, I've, that's a giant call. I mean, that is a giant call if that's... If the that's, other person who thinks that is Alex Gurevich. Oh, Alex, yeah. Well, he's good. I mean, it's... Look, it's not impossible, but I think even going down to 2% would sort of have the net effect the same would have the net the same effect so yeah i um i think the markets are going to be surprised and that's also going to be very bullish for nasdaq um and the the banking system can continue uh to be impaired i mean how long credit swiss was failing for eight years i mean this the their bankruptcy was i mean no surprise you used to post those charts like once a year oh it's like you know, it's going to move down. Right. Yeah. Chart, chart of debt. Like it was. So it was no surprise. And you know what? It could be 
that that's now the chart for the U.S. banking that's, system. That's it kind of in be. my head. It's it like really, I mean, this feels like the European banking crisis in 2012 without the sovereign side. Yeah. Uh, it feels exactly the same, you know. We saw the same in the Spanish banks and we saw a shrinkage. You, you saw that chart, I don't know, it was on Twitter of the number of US banks. Thanks. Yes, I saw that, yeah. I remember that chart about Italian banks back in, where was I? I think I was still at Goldman. Um, That's so back in the 90s, thinking, oh my God, this is an outlier. They're all going to have to consolidate. Yeah. Consolidated by acquisition and then they're consolidated by being pulled into each other's hands because they're going bust. Yeah. Same it, thing. It, it could be that that's how the transition happens. Like just slow degradation. Uh, they get stuck in this quagmire. If they're not, they couldn't make money when rates were high. Um, then they go back down and you know, maybe investors just don't think of banks as money-making enterprises anymore. And that was sort of what's going on here. I mean, if the, just think about it as an investor, if you make a judgment and i.e. you put money into 10-year notes and you lose 30% of the value and then the Fed comes out and says, or FDIC or whoever it is, and they say, well, you lost all that money, but if you need to have that collateral marked at par so that you can make loans, you can. There's a free option to monetize your losses uh, and we'll give you that. It's like unlimited potential liquidity. So as an investor, you say, well, is that a business or is that a quasi-government institution? And do I want to invest in that? And so maybe the slow bleed of assets coming out of the U.S. system. I don't think it's going to Europe. I don't think it's going to Asia. I mean, it's going into this digital asset ecosystem. It's the technology or the digital asset ecosystem, because that's the only thing. Because the other thing is you play that forward about, okay, you figured out the banks don't make money, and if the banks have lost money, the, the Fed just kind of papers over the cracks and injects the money. Well, the next part of this equation is that commercial real estate, which is like, we know that nobody's going back to the office. Right. Uh, you, you're running a global asset management company and you're based in Puerto Rico. All right. So, I haven't called it global yet, but okay, yeah. <laughs> but you've got people around in different, yes, places, different places, right? Yes. And there's commercial real estate, right? That story is like the European banks. That's going to fester for a decade and the Fed are going to have to put it on the balance sheet in one way, shape or form. Yeah, I don't know how that plays out. I mean, I think that's right. I, I, I you know, I don't think it goes to zero. People, you know, still like being together at New York City is a great place, a great meeting place for people. Young people like living in cities. So I don't, I don't know how that- 20, But let's say you lose 20% of all- Yeah, yeah no, I know. That's I know. a huge number. It's gigantic. Yeah, I, I don't know how that how that plays out, but there's definitely a, a, quite a lot of overhang, and maybe that sort of um, that slow. I don't want to call it deflation, but it's sort of the you know it's connected to how much debt we now have, sort of in the West, right? The debt. This is one of the reasons why I. The main reason why I thought it was not the 70s, we didn't have any debt in the 70s. And the global economy, I mean, look at Japan, rates didn't go up as much there, but you know, there's no way that, that our West can handle rates like that. And so there's an overhang of commercial real estate. There's an overhang of, you know, I don't want to say bad banks, because I just think non-capitalist banks. And then I had this thought that this concept of store of value um, is shifting because many people invest in real estate as store of value, right? And I think it's it's certainly trillions. I mean, a hundred is it a hundred trillion? I forgot the total amount of dollars or wealth. It's like a hundred or two hundred trillion. It's a huge number. Yeah, it's a huge number. And you know, this was something that you and I talked about maybe two three years ago and posted on Twitter that 
um, the store of value component of, let's say, art or real estate um, was going to shift to this digital world. That, that you know, the finite supply of real estate um, in theory, I mean, it's somewhat finite, you know, hard to add a lot of supply in some areas, but, you know, you have this finite digital collateral now, um, and it's just an easier place. It doesn't, in, in the case of Bitcoin, maybe doesn't produce income. I mean, Ethereum does, of course, um, produce nice income with its staking um, yield, but, you know, I just keep thinking that that's how money migrates from That's a really interesting thought. The whole world. Yeah. So let's say you're Nico, the producer, who's listening to this call. Nico, millennial, can't afford to buy a house. What does Nico do? Buys NFTs, buys crypto, because it's an asset, right? All assets are a future deferred consumption. So you buy a house now so you or your kids or somebody else can spend that money in due course. If not, there's no point in having it. It's a utility. So assets are just deferred consumption. So if you're at 34 years old now and you want to accumulate assets, but you can't afford a house. So digital assets become an obvious place. Well, it's very easy. You just get, you know, you open your, you know, get a wallet and, uh, you know, you have your, you know, buy whatever one, you know, that you, you think it's going to hold its value. And put it on a ledger and, you know, finito. Um, it's easy. You don't have to go through all of the stuff that you have to go through to buy a home. Um, but again, look, I think, like, home ownership's not going away. It's just that there's a component of of real estate that people in, uh, that there's a component of it that for investors is a store of value holder, Right. Just like gold is a store of value, but some of the gold money has migrated into Bitcoin ETH. I look whether people want to put it into punks or apes. That you know, whatever. That's up to them. I, I think that's a lot of. And the other chains right now, to me, are, are sort of more, still more venture. Um, only Bitcoin and Ethereum really have achieved network effect, in my view, um, and really sort of count as as that. Um, you know, I don't think you sell your commercial real estate property to go into, you know, I, I, I don't know, Dogecoin or something. That's no, but you will get young people who yeah. can't afford, right. can't fractionalize it. So if you want to put 10% right. of your savings in, right, you can't afford to do that in a house because it doesn't pay your mortgage payments. So what you end up doing is looking for something else. I think that's yeah. your point. Yeah. And I think that that's how, and I mentioned this point before, I think that people always said, and you always thought that there was going to be, uh, what was it called? The debt jubilee. And I remember once we were talking about this, I thought, you know, there's never going to be a debt jubilee because the, the, the result is too cataclysmic and horrible. What's going to happen is all of those hundreds of trillions or whatever it is, hundred trillion of debt that exists in the West is just simply going to get devalued against Bitcoin, ETH, and the assets in the digital asset ecosystem. So if that's value today is 1.7 trillion, if the value of all that debt stays constant and all the value of all the assets in the old world, let's just say stays at a certain place. Let's say it goes up 100% over the next 10 years. The value in the, the digital asset ecosystem will be up 10x. And so what will happen is that... Um, there won't be a debt jubilee. It's just that people who all, all of their assets in the old world get devalued versus all of the people who are in the new world. And it's a very subtle shift. And all of a sudden, people in the old world are like, well, I thought I could afford that you know, painting or that house or that car. And now I sort of can't, but I see that this younger guy who is in this project or in whatever, he can. And I think you're, you're starting to see that a little bit. That's true. If you think right. about that narrative, the kind yeah. of Lambo narrative or the Miami narrative and these crypto guys, yeah, it's exactly that because their purchasing power is outperforming the trad fight. Big time, big time, big time. And look, I think you're getting some trad fight people moving in, but it's still slow based on our accounting 
Only 4% of the world right now have digital wallets. And that's sort of equivalent to 1998 in terms of the adoption of the internet. That's when 4% of the world had access to the internet. So it's still very, very early. I know it feels late because every year in crypto is like five years in TradFi world and I don't know how we're surviving it. I mean, you and I, older guys, we're actually enjoying it. Yeah, it is fun. And, you know, we, we, you know, we know how to manage it, but it really is fast paced, fast growing. I do think the traditional world is slowly getting that, you know, there's real, th this is real, that there's real math behind it. You know, the Satoshi white paper is not some fictional nonsense. It really is an important invention. Um, and, you know, the, the, the initial concept um, that supports and backs Bitcoin and the Bitcoin network is, you know, a, a, like a find. It's a, it's a great invention. Hey, everyone. We're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah. Conversations with investors. Now you're onto your fourth funds now. Yeah. Your conversation investors, when you started, a lot of what you saw was family offices, right? They got it. They were more bigger risk takers. They were they understood the opportunity. Are you seeing that broaden out? How how are you seeing yeah. evolution of the investor base? So this is interesting because I just got back from a month long trip. I've never done a month long trip. I was in uh Dubai and Abu Dhabi and then Riyadh and then Melbourne and uh, Sydney and then I've dropped it by in Auckland and then wow. up to Paris. So I really got a sense. I want to say something about that. But um, in the beginning, yes, it was more family and really just friends of mine and my people in my in my world network and um, but now we we did at the tail end of the third fund. Um, a little bit in the say we did start to see more institutions. The um, you know Texas Teachers is an investor. Uh, we also have the Michigan Pen uh, Employees Pension Fund, MERS. They're an investor. Um, we have an endowment. We have um, some foundations. So, um, I, but right now it's it's really picking up, um, and you'd be surprised. It's for people who have no exposure, but who sort of especially in the last six weeks, they're sort of seeing, oh, well, Bitcoin's up 70% on the year. Is that what it is? Or 30% during this banking crisis. And you know what? That like kind of makes sense. And they didn't need a bailout in that world. And there are some bad actors, but there's a lot of value there and a lot of different things going on. There's DeFi stuff going in the DeFi world. There's stablecoin business. There's NFTs. A lot of different things. They're now ordinals on Bitcoin, even, you know, the, um, so there's the, the space itself is not just relying upon the price of Bitcoin and Ethereum. That's the big difference to me from 18 and 19 was that, you know, there's so many things going on underneath the hood. The number of developers that have entered the blockchain space is now at an all time high. So through 22, it kept increasing. Um, you know, of course, you have things like the Bitcoin hash rate. It just hit an all-time high. The number of players in the NFT space, you know, from 18 months ago is up exponentially. So there's the number of layer, the the number of um, layer ones that have had the, the sort of the top five or six, the usage is at an all-time high. So, you know, it just, it's no longer just about um, the price of, you know, those two leading ones and you know some of the other uh some of the other cryptocurrencies so i i think that's also attracting institutional people who are understanding that this is a you know once in a generation type of 
technology. Yeah, I think if we go back, back to whenever it was, 2018 or 19, when we had our first conversation on Real Vision about this, the big yeah. difference between then and now was the applications layers being built. Big time, yep. And they get that. They see that. And this is closer to, you know, the last people in will be when it becomes ubiquitous and everybody has it on their iPhone. But it's this application layer, the consumerization and the integration of blockchain technology that's big. Yeah, and it's not through the what we expected. I mean, you see all these name brands coming in to, you know, incorporate blockchain into their business models. And of course, I know you saw this a few weeks ago, the California DMV is putting licenses and card deed, title deed on the Tezos blockchain. Now, I don't know why they've specifically chosen Tezos, but the point is you have a non-economic, non-capitalist entity uh, basically at the cutting edge. I mean, it's this is I think a fantastic use case. And so the, the Argentinian airline with ticketing. Right. So uh, exactly. something I've been talking about and suddenly there it is. Exactly. So I I think you're getting, you know, adoption uh through ways that we hadn't anticipated because once you have a digital wallet, it's just a short quick step to understanding that Bitcoin is collateral, Ethereum is programmable money, you know, that they're different things that you can hold in this digital wallet, right? It doesn't doesn't just have to be, you know, your 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 license, right? Um, you know, your license uh, that sits on a blockchain. So I would also say one more thing, because I want to just mention my trip, because you asked me about, has the interest been broadening? I mean, the Middle East is really on fire. In terms I'm hearing the same from everybody. They, tell, me, tell me about I, it. Well, they... They're, look, they get it and they're embracing it. They see that it's the future. Um, you know, Abu Dhabi specifically, Dubai too, encouraging businesses to set up there. You know, there is in Dubai and also in Abu Dhabi, there is a regulatory framework. Um, and, you know, I think people, of course, are looking to the SEC, regulators around the world, but the SEC is going backwards and the U.S. is moving backwards. And again, I've said this before, this is the first time in 50 years that the U.S. has not been leading technological and financial innovation. You know, we invented the mortgage-backed security market in the 80s. Um, you know, it just, there are things that we always were leading and now we're at the end. I mean, we're in the, we're in the, in the caboose. Um, Look, I also think other places, and you see this in Australia, they really understand currency. You could stop anybody on the street and ask them where the Aussie dollar is, and they'll they'll tell you. Um, Americans don't think about currency, and they think about the Nasdaq, but um, they don't think about the dollar. They don't really know where it is. So the concept of cryptocurrency is there's a hurdle there, and you know, adoption is just slowed if there are hurdles any hurdle and so crypto and currency it's just too strange for them right but the australians they're entrepreneurs they live on a big island they look out they always look for investment opportunities very wealthy population generally speaking and they really get it and i i um was there and i, I um had a lunch at one of the larger banks and they've already um, tokenized an asset and put it on a blockchain. They're, you know, pretty advanced in that sense. I don't know that there's any trading volume on it yet, but they have people well-versed. That's not to say, look, JP Morgan has the largest number of blockchain patents in the world. So even though Jamie Dimon is saying whatever he's saying, under the hood, they're doing stuff. But I feel like in Australia, you know, the, the, the things are coming together, the tech innovation, the currency part, the money part, and it's the same thing in the Middle East. Yeah, I get the same because I've heard right. a lot from, I mean, everybody, all of my friends are all in the Middle East all the time on this endless road trip because there's capital and they understand that the fossil fuel economy over time is going to shrink versus uh, the re renewables economy. So they're like, well, we need to have a stake in the future. And they've been very strongly behind this. Yeah. One other interesting thing, because I topped the trip off with a few days, is it Paris Blockchain Week? And what you realize is that 
every region has its different focus on what they are extracting from this digital asset ecosystem. So you find a lot of the luxury brands in Paris are very interested in figuring out how to issue NFTs to get closer with their community. You know, how do you develop that relationship with a product better? Um, that's, I mean, that's somewhat of a focus in the U.S., but like, for, for instance, there aren't really any OG Bitcoiners in France. There was no one in 2010, 11, 12. Whereas in the U.S., you go to Bitcoin Miami and you have 25,000, you know, Bitcoiners, guys, you know, who are also mining it from the beginning. Um, you know, if you go to East Denver, that's a little different focus. Uh, out on the West Coast is more about the tech. Uh, Europe, France specifically is, you know, this luxury brand focus. Um, the Middle East, I think, is sort of everything combined. But also remember, those currencies are pegged. The real, the dirham, they're pegged to the dollar. So I think for them, they also understand that they need to have a diversification of their assets outside of having 95% in the dollar and then you know 10% in the euro. They get the concept of currency diversification and then in Asia, they also have a different focus. I feel like that's more um, in Korea, for instance, blockchain gaming, right? right? And there's a big gaming universe in Asia. There are gambling platforms that are legal there as well. And so what's interesting is it's not one thing, this space now. It's many different things, and it's many different things in different areas. And people say, oh, well, the U.S. is just going to regulate it all the way. Well, 85% of total world crypto trading volume is done outside the U.S. And my view on this is like, you and I saw this, is the U.S. after they left the gold standard, tried to restrict their currency. So the FX market started in London and became huge. Then the U.S. was like, well, we're not going to lend to you foreigners because we're still trying to protect our own economy. So the the UK developed the euro dollar market, which became the largest market. That and the FX market, the largest markets the world has ever seen. Then the US made a third strategic mistake, which was we're not going to let our banks do OTC derivatives. So we're going to change the capital uh, reserve ratios for banks. And the UK changed it and said, no, no, we're just going to arbitrage you. And they want that entire business. And only after Brexit and other stuff did capital go back, i.e. the financial center moved back from London. Because if you remember, well, if you think how many times have you traveled to London recently, it's very few. How many times did you travel in your career? It was all the time. Because, right. Because all the capital was there and all the people. But I think what I've heard whispers is that the UK is making progress on the regulatory framework and for, for blockchain crypto. And I think, you know, you call, and you may have mentioned this, but I've, uh, maybe I've read this somewhere, but I, I think that they could do that, what you're calling regulatory arbitrage again. I mean, just think about this for a second. We've invested in 26 businesses over the last two years. And I keep saying to people, I think, look, there is one large crypto business that's public, only one, it's Coinbase. It is impossible to think that five years from now, there is only going to be one public crypto business. And so, you know, part of my focus is going to be figuring out how to get some of our businesses public. And it's not clear that it's going to be on the NASDAQ, which is kind of a shocker in a way. But look, if you took our 26 companies, I think any exchange in the world, um, you know, if if they they're not going to, but if they were to were public entities tomorrow, they would overnight become a hub. You know, for crypto blockchain. And I, where are these, yeah. where are these companies based that you're so, investing uh, in? In our portfolio, sixty five percent are outside the U.S. because I diversified. I wanted one third in the U.S., one third in. Asia, you know, other one third in, in Europe. And so you'd be surprised. There are a lot of interesting, great businesses uh, outside the U.S. As you know, it, it makes sense given the focus um, outside the U.S. So I'm just saying you could have an exchange somewhere, whether it's Dubai or U.K., that if they decided that, wow, 
some light bulb switched on, or you've got a 37 year old guy running the regulator. Um, you know, like I, I met the economy minister in Dubai, he's 41. Uh, he gets this almost better than anybody I'd met uh, in terms of, um, you know, in, in the legislative uh, area. Um, but if you have someone turn a light bulb and say, hey, we've got a few years, the US is gonna get it eventually, they're not getting it now, and it's just as you said with the UK, maybe the market really develops there, right? It's certainly possible that would be a, you know, it's not, that unfortunately, for it's not as liquid as it would be on NASDAQ, et cetera, but it just doesn't seem like the US is coming around. It's only less liquid now. I mean, the FTSE used to be liquid. They've just got yeah. boring old companies that are exactly. commodity companies, a few dead banks and stuff like that. So, you know, I look at it in the UK, has got a problem. It's got no growth industry, a bit of fintech, that's it. It has it's lost the capital markets to the US. And here's a $1.7 trillion business. And it's just a regulatory arbitrage business of which they understand and they want to regulate it. And it we know that if Coinbase tomorrow, if the UK said yes, we're in it fully, Coinbase would relocate like Goldman did and every single investment bank did, the major all of their talent pool ended up being in the UK. It's easy. It, it could be. I mean, it, it really could be. It's an open field right now. And, you know, I was going to say part of the issue in the U.S. is that the leadership is all, you know, it's they're all 80-year-olds, literally 80 years old. And I think what the U.S. needs really is just younger leadership. And it doesn't even really matter which side they're on. Uh, a 40-year-old sort of gets the future. And, you know, you look at some of the Middle East leaders, they're in their late 30s, 40s. And it had to be when you hear plans. M MBS is 38. He's 38. Um, yeah, and they have 20-year plans. They have 30-year plans, and or at least visions, you know. And Biden doesn't have a 20-year vision, um, and I, I don't think any of them do. So I think, look, don't care all be dead in 20 years. Dan, you can't yeah. have a 20-year plan if you're all going to be dead. No, I. That was the point. Yeah, I know, but I was trying to spell that out for people. No, I, that was the point, right? Like it's it's bad now. It's bad. Um, and you know, maybe this leads into the next point. If you can't even figure this world out, what are you going to do with ChatGPT? Uh, you know, I you've been talking about this a little bit. I appointed just uh, on Saturday. We uh, I, one of my guys on my team is sort of head of. ChatGPT within the firm to figure out how do we incorporate it into our processes and also how do we incorporate it into our investment decision making, not just the process, but looking for companies that are integrating, you know, blockchain with chat. And I think that's something really interesting or AI, um, because I think the blockchain does have a a, a purpose there. We're still trying to figure it out, but, but, but there are going to be companies popping up. So my two ideas for that, wow. obviously digital ID that we've all talked about, and that's a no-brainer. But the other one is, is Emad, I think you must, you might have met him at Global Macro Investor Roundtables. He was a GMI guy who built Stability AI. He was a macro guy. Um, <laughs> yeah. I... Emad Mostak. Uh, you must watch the two videos I did with him if you've not seen them. It okay. kept mind blowing. He's a macro guy. Okay. Yeah, I will. All right. Building the largest open source AI in the world. Um, and I spoke to him. I said, well, why the hell don't you tokenize the use of the data? Whoa. Because that allows everybody Damn. to participate in it, as opposed to having to buy the equity, everything else. We can all participate in the ecosystem because it's going to replace humanity in various ways. You need to offset because it can't just be UBI, but the the Yatsui idea of universal basic equity is yeah. this: let people participate in this change and don't just keep it to bloody Google or yeah Microsoft. Yeah, well, that's a very interesting idea. I um, what did he say? I guess I have to. Well, I think he he first wants to IPO anyway, but I think he's. I mean, he knows blockchain. I mean, you know, he's he's all over the space. Mm -hmm. So. I'll just keep working on him because I think it's I think it's exactly the right use of a universal data set of such power is tokenize it. So then if you are building an application on top and you're drawing a lot of the uh, data, you pay for it with a token. 
And if you're putting data in, you can receive tokens. And that creates an economy. Huge. Economy. Yeah, no, I mean, it's that's an innovative thought. I, I, I like that. Yeah, I don't think there's so much to fear here. I understand, uh, I mean, Italy banning, it just seems like, you know, the most backwards guy banning it. I mean, isn't that a buy signal? I mean, my goodness, right? It's like the worst trader in the world selling your selling his thing at the low. It's it's a buy signal. Um, so I yeah I I think it it's it augments our you know functioning right. Yeah, and maybe it's too far into the future to worry about the other side. I just think it's a renaissance for humanity, really, if we leverage it. So let me focus in a little bit on your portfolio right now and what kind of investment opportunities you're seeing you're seeing mainly secondary so yeah there, there's just so much opportunity right now i don't think i've ever seen so much um in q4 so i'm probably one of the few private equity guys that actually likes the cycle i mean most guys as you know they have a five-year investment period because they want to invest through the cycle i have a view on the cycle i thought q4 was the low we invested over 100 million into seven different businesses, um, October, November, December. Um, four of the businesses were through the secondary that we bought at 50 to 80% discounts from previous rounds. And so who's selling funds that want to get out of, of crypto for whatever reason, you know, a partner moves on and they have a portfolio they want to reduce, you know, you have founders or, you know, co-founders who need money, they want to buy a house or whatever it is. Um, you have seed investors who say, well, I missed the $7 billion valuation, but I'll sell it too. And um, some of the discounts are pretty dramatic and they're, we're very active in the secondary. Of the $1.2 billion, we've deployed $600 million of it is in secondary, half. And so, um, and I think that's the largest amount by multiples and multiples of anybody else. So we have tremendous reverse inquiry. Anybody who wants to sell uh, stock in a business that's sort of on our radar above five, 10 million, you know, we're the buyer and it's, it's uncompetitive at the moment. Like we are basically just saying, this is our price. You know, we want to pay, you know, X multiple of revenue and, you know, we're 10 year life fund. So um, we can buy now and take advantage of it. And that's the reason for raising money now for another fund. Um, the first close is going to be at the end of June um, is because these discounts are dramatic. I mean, I can just, you know, you have companies like OpenSea where there's stock in the market now at, you know, you can just call any broker at 90% discount. And you've got, you know, some of these other bigger companies you know, even Alchemy, a lot of these companies that raised at 50 to 100 times revenue in 21 and 22, you can buy their stock in the secondary at very attractive valuations. We also led two, uh, uh, three rounds, in fact, um, of companies. And I wouldn't say that, I mean, we, we set the pricing. I wouldn't say it was super um, cheap. It wasn't. Um, one of them was, you know, reasonably, I think there were more reasonable prices. These are businesses. Well, one of them, QuickNode, got some press. We invested 40 million in QuickNode, um, 720 million pre-money valuation. I think, um, you know, that's an API node infrastructure business that competes with Alchemy. Alchemy raised it a hundred times revenue. And so we paid a fraction uh, of that. I, I think a hundred is crazy. I think even what we paid was a little rich, but very happy to own that business. And um, that's one of the few businesses in the space that actually made more money in 22 than in 21. So in the portfolio, we've got five or six companies that made more money, if you can think about this, in 22 than 21, even though the space had that massive correction. And so this sort of speaks to my general thesis, which is that the fund and what we do, we're not going to be the number one performer in the space, um, but we're not going to have the volatility. And, you know, our target is still to make a five or 10 X on the portfolio over, over 10 years. That's going to underperform probably some of these other funds, but many of those, especially venture funds are down 90, you know, percent or were down 90% um, in, in 22. So the one thing I would say that's still surprising to me is that as far as I know, we're the only 
still the only growth equity fund that exclusively focuses on uh, crypto and blockchain businesses in the world. Like I, I don't know why the other guys haven't come. I mean, it's, it's, it's so easy. I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me. You know, you had some of the traditional guys come in, like you know Tiger and Toma Bravo, but they've sort of moved out. Um, and I don't know. I I think I just I'm counting my days till Blackstone decides they're interested, and then you know then it's over for us. Uh, you know, I have you know no no airs about that. I, I think if some of the big guys really decide that they need exposure in this space, you know. The growth has been crazy. And, you know, when we started this in the middle of 19, there were only 14 businesses in the world that had a valuation of over a billion dollars in the space. Now there are over 100. At the peak, there were over 150. So I think that there's going to be not only just more money coming into it, but by the end of 24, I think 25, you're going to see, a, you know, these companies, many of the, the better ones is public uh, entities. They, the founders want to become public. These guys, you know, they're not quite ready. In some cases, they need to be a little more corporate. They need to figure things out on governance. They need to build a board. I mean, remember FTX? I mean, FTX had one board member and that was his father, right? Like if that wasn't a red flag, thankfully we passed on that three times, but you have companies that are making a fortune, but still aren't quite ready for the public round but i think by the end of 24 25 there are going to be quite a few and i think we're going to be very involved in that whole process so look um lots of opportunity not just in the secondary but we're not really competing against other people um in these raises so yeah it's not like you're overpaying there's nobody else showing up <laughs> you know it's not like oh we've got no competition because we're soft bank and we overpay I know, I know. So, look, I, I, I don't look. This is one of those inexplainable things, I guess. Um, I mean, I can explain it. Look, you know, traditional private equity isn't terribly comfortable with macro. They're not comfortable with currency, right? A lot of them don't even do tech. So this is sort of like the really big money. I mean, Blackstone is still buying more real estate, right? Um, look, they have a trillion dollar business. They can do whatever they like. Um, but even the tech oriented guys like Toma Bravo said recently, um, you know, a few months ago that, you know, they're, 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 they're not finding, you know, companies of the quality that they need or expect. And I don't know, we, we, we think that they're there. Maybe we're a little further out the risk spectrum than they are. Um, but we also think it's an opportunity to help them get there. Um, and so when this is the only thing that you do all day, every day, and again, we don't invest in the underlying cryptocurrency. A lot of our institutional investors um, are legally not allowed to. And so what we have is a you know a much lower volatility. Our, our you know portfolios, for the most part, hardly marked down. You know, marked down a little bit, but not that much. And um, you know, we're able to withstand the kind of volatility that's in the space. And look, as you know, that's always been my main concern. How do you get stuck in and hold the position for 10 years in a space that every three years has a 70 to 85% correction? You're going to get blown out. We know this from our old portfolio management days in the traditional world. You know, you could get blown out or your, your boss, you know, doesn't like it when you have a you know, a down year, right? Um, or your investor. Um, and yeah, so- Because there's only family offices or individuals like us who can stomach the cycle. We kind of know the cycle's there. You add more when it sells off. And right. that's it. But yeah, I mean, the, the amount of hedge funds who are in the space and now left the space because suddenly yeah. it doesn't go up in a straight line. Yeah, it doesn't go up in a straight line. And if you can take a five, 10 year view, you're going to make money. This is inevitable inexorable move up uh, in the value. And um, we think, I mean, I think we've built a fund structure and a way to tap in to that value accretion without the panic and fear and all that other stuff that a company's holding, you know, the rocket fuel. Because this is really the hardest market 
I've ever seen to trade. And, you know, I'm a professional at this. And you have a lot of non-professionals. I don't know how they hold on. I mean, I, I'm glad they do. It's fantastic. They're true believers. That's great. But let's be clear. It's very hard. And so I call our strategy a, you know, sleep well at night strategy. And, um, you know, if you're a little older and you want to put $50 million to work, it's just very hard. It's not straightforward. And we actually have quite a few investors of, of that size putting big chunks of money to work uh, in these businesses. And sometimes we get a little lucky and we have businesses that even make more money during bear phases, which means that during a bull phase, they could go up 5x, you know, 6x in revenue. And so I'm I, I'm thinking that we end the year higher. I don't know what your forecast is for uh, Bitcoin and ETH for this year, but I, I think post the halving in the second half of 24 into 25, we're certainly looking over 100,000. Yeah, I think this cycle is not 2019. So I don't think we get the long pullback correction. I think we'll get a running correction sideways, much like 2013, 16, those kind of ones. So that leads me into the final question is clearly you were like Fox with this 20th century Fox who had the name 10T. You're like, this space is going to be bigger than 10 trillion pretty soon. Yeah. It's going to look out of date. Yeah, right. It's yeah, I I think so. But you know what? The the when it was three hundred billion, right? The the name of uh, the first three funds we called I called it ten T uh, because ten trillion. I thought we'd make a thirty X in ten years. But I'll tell you something. I was already realizing that the name wasn't going to be actually the right uh, name. It was last year. I was on a panel with Dan Moorhead and Mark Yusko, and the final question of the panel was. What do we think the value in this ecosystem is going to be? The digital, I thought the whole thing. And Dan all of a sudden throws out 50 trillion. Okay. And I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, I was going to say 10 because that was my view. But, and then Mark is next. And Mark's like, well, you know, I think it'd probably be more like 30. And so all of a sudden, here I am on this panel <laughs> as the most bearish guy. And I said, well, realistically okay i mean i 10 was i think a realistic view it's probably 20 i said 20 but you know the reality is is you know dan is you know i think she's probably right and i just the timing on it is not you know you don't know that's the hardest thing about macro i always tell people it's just sometimes macro takes longer to play out than you expect and you really have to be stuck in, you know, you really have to, and that's part of the reason for our strategy is that I just want to be there 10 years from now with the portfolio I have. I know we're going to make multiples on our money. Um, and I think we're going to be able to do it without, you know, having to panic uh, every three years because something happens or the space, you know, uh, collapses or, or whatever. But we're in a good position now. And I think it's empty and I've never, I mean, think back and you were, you were earlier than me. I, I remember that round table that we did in Cayman in 2013, I think it was where Bitcoin was your number one choice. I mean, if we go back to 13, uh, and I think you were bullish even before 13, um, do you think now is sort of the best time that you can recall? I mean, I'm just saying the price is lower, but yeah. I, I yes, I think it's the best just risk adjusted reward yeah. ever. And I said that last cycle, but I think it's the the risk side of the equation has shrunk. Yeah. Odd side is still unknown but ridiculous. You know, when I first did that first ever macro strategy piece, I said, Look, I think Bitcoin's worth a million bucks. By when I don't know. Right. And it feels like but probably by when yeah. I don't know. And so therefore, here we are at thirty thousand today. Well, find me another trade on earth that's as good as that. And Bitcoin will underperform some of the others in this space. Yeah. I mean, I, I think Eve, you pointed out the chart. I also looked at it. I hate to, we go from 30 year view to, or 10 year, 20 year view to, to the daily, because we can do that. But that chart looks like it's about to explode. I mean, Ethereum looks to me like it's about to go up 500 points, like imminently. I, right? I understand. Mm -hmm. Then if you look at the Bitcoin, the ETH Bitcoin cross, 
Yeah. The monthly version of that, it's just a huge wedge. I'm like, okay, this. Yeah, I, but they're, they're both going up. They're, they yeah. both have different uses. And, you know, I think that the difference now, and this is the last thing I'd say from every other cycle, is that there are so many things going on in this universe. It's not just, you know, 17 was just this pump and dump with the stupid ICOs and people ripping people off. Like, it was terrible in a way. This is not what it's about anymore. It's a large space with a large amount of value and many, many use cases. And it's incumbent upon the traditional people to do the work, right? And look, if we go back to when we first had our chat on camera, like obviously you and I have talked about Bitcoin and crypto. So a lot 19, that. I think. Somewhere yeah. 19. And so we look at that. Since then, Real Vision has integrated NFTs, um, digital wallets, digital IDs, all sorts of stuff. Then I built an entire asset management business, which is a fund of funds, just investing in that space. And then I built another business, which tokenizes the world's largest cultural communities, all the big brands. That's how fast this has changed. Right. You've pivoted your entire life. I've pivoted my entire life. Alan Howard's pivoted his entire life. I mean, it's unbelievable how much yeah. has been built here. And we're all building different parts of this ecosystem out. And we've all got friends who are building other parts of the ecosystem out. It's ridiculous. Right. And it's still incredible. Don't forget, only 4% of the world have digital wallets. And so, you know, you think, when is this going to end? But maybe in a way it hasn't even started yet i mean i hate to it say it ended it just not going AI. AI. what's that yeah i'm that never ended it just became ai in the end yeah yeah i know it's incredible we're living in great times now and i don't know there's so much negativity i posted last night twitter the most uh like negative for the longest period of time that everyone's ever been that's why i say is this the best time that you've ever seen because I can't remember when people were so diabolically negative and yet the opportunity was so clear in a way. I wrote that in a GMI that you just got yesterday. Yes. I think this is the best macro setup of all time that I've ever lived through. It's incredible. Yeah. All right. Well, hopefully we get some of your listeners inspired to dig deep and, and do the work, the ones who haven't. Exactly right. Brilliant, my friend, as ever. Good to catch up. We'll try and catch up in person somewhere in the world. Absolutely. You've missed the GMI roundtable. It's in Mallorca this year. Would have been oh, whoa. Oh, next year. <laughs> All right, my friend. Good to see you. It's really interesting, having not spoken to Dan for a while, to see his line of thinking is, is very much in line with mine. Where we are in the macro, what this means for this adoption of the Bitcoin life raft or the digital asset life raft, you know, he, he completely concurs with my view that it happens over time. We get these accelerated moments in the booms and then they pull back. But each time there's more people in Noah's Ark or the life raft. And I think that's really interesting. Really, also, Dan is like on his fourth fund. I mean, incredible business he's building there. Really interesting to see his unwavering belief in where this space is going seeing through the volatility, seeing through the macro and saying, let's just keep going there. It's a matter of time. It's all about time horizon in this space and how to structure your life that you can accept the volatility. Um, so again, as ever, amazing conversation with Dan. I hope you got a lot out of it. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best brightest and biggest names in finance.